0: Good morning it 's good to be here. I was uh, remarking earlier I think this is the first time i 've been here i 've been in the area for ten years and so uh, and I do this a lot actually I uh, on Sunday mornings given that my call is to campus on Sunday mornings i 'm an ordained free agent uh, meaning I, I do an awful lot of this in my presbytery i 'm first off the bench for pulpit supply so uh, twenty or so, Sundays a year, I'm in a church pulpit somewhere doing this. And it's a great joy for me to do it. I, <clears throat> I enjoy doing it. It's lovely. It's wonderful. I get to meet your congregations. And, uh, and I learn something and see some new things. For instance, that time of prayer for your covenant kids, I've seen no other church do that. And it's a shame because that's beautiful and good. I, I really appreciate that. Um, and one of the things we try to do in RUF, and this is what we tell our, our churches and our denomination, is you care for your covenant kids. I assume you do. Uh, and it's clear that you do. And when they go off to college, it's, it's hard to care for them. You may even want to. But they're distant. They're away. How do you do it? Well, hopefully you can hand them off to a pastor and ministry that cares for them. We want to shepherd and care for your covenant kids while they're away. And continue to reach their non-Christian friends as well. That's why we exist. So uh, I appreciate that. That was a wonderful, beautiful thing. Very encouraging to my heart. And uh, let's get ready for what we're doing this morning. Uh, We're in John chapter 14. (coughs) You're going to have to forgive me. I'm still working through a cold. I'm going to cough more than I should. We're in John 14. As the Advent service uh, comes near, we'll soon be uh, celebrating the, the coming of Jesus But this particular part of the text in John is uh, Jesus preparing uh, for the exit, the goings. He spends four or five chapters preparing his closest followers for his departure. And uh, in this particular part of the text, he has just told them that one of the ways they'll be comforted in his leaving is the promise of heaven, that they'll be with him for eternity. That's That's the beginning of chapter 14. Uh, The reality of all this is that Jesus comes and then goes, and until he comes again, we have this, bear with me, I know you don't know me, we have this strange part of our religion where the chief person that we love and adore and worship is not with us. Now, I know he's with us by the Spirit. He's Emmanuel, I get it. But you don't hug him, shake his hand, or see him, right? None of you, if you do, we're Presbyterians, we don't do that. Um, we, uh, we're absent from him. And it's, it's the strangest, and I don't think we think about it about very much. It's the strangest and probably the single hardest reality about our faith. That the one we love the most is absent from us. And he's still with us, but there are times that absence becomes really hard. And Jesus is preparing his men, his followers for the distance in the absence, and it's when tragedy strikes, it's when bad things happen in our lives and our nation that sometimes that distance becomes a little too much and even people of great faith will stop and maybe they won't say it out loud, but they'll think it. In your absence, do you care about us right here? I know heaven's coming and you will fix everything then and there. I know we'll be together and then you'll restore all things. But in the here and here, and the now, right here in the midst of national tragedy or personal disappointment, do you care about me and our world right now? And our text today, I think, addresses that. It does. What does Jesus think about us and the world right here and now? So I'm going to be reading verses 12 to 31, chapter 14. The words of Jesus, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not the Iscariot one, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you that I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let's go from here. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Our great Father, we pray you be kind this morning, keeping with your great promises to show us wonderful things in your law. Soften our minds, soften our hearts, lift them up, Lord, that we may comprehend you in your greatness and in your goodness. Would you take your gospel, press it into reality in our lives, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I know we don't know each other, so this is an unfair exercise, but, uh, I would like to invite you to think about what I might be afraid of. I'm a 42-year-old. Uh, that means I don't have a lot of the fears that my students do. My students, of course, are greatly concerned about what people think about them, their peers. They're greatly concerned about their future, what job they're going to get, all those things. I don't have any of those concerns. My life is in a happy rut, you know, when you're middle-aged, 42, you, you just hope that your life is in a good rut. You can get out of it, but it's just sort of violent. Um, so I don't have any of those fears. Um, all the, the somewhat uh, well-known phobias that some folks might have about heights or water or whatever the case, I don't really have any of those. Those, those common freaky things that scare people like spiders and snakes. Uh, that's a different category for me. That's the category of snakes and spiders and you jumping out from a corner uh, behind me to scare me. Those all fit into a category of I'm not afraid, but I will react with swift, violent retribution. So don't ever, for your own good, try to scare me or I will choke you out. I just will. I won't even think about it. I'm just going to go for your neck. And so I, that's not really what I would call fear. Uh, but I fly regularly for my job and it's training. And uh, flying, although I'm not afraid of flying, I sleep like a baby. Um, flying does make me face my biggest fear. As, as a plane is uh, about to take off or when it lands safely, I always sing the doxology. I, I understand that planes are supposed to fly, but it still seems like a miracle. And, uh, and every time it takes off and lands successfully, I, I just thank and praise the Lord by quietly quietly to myself, singing the mixology. Um Because the thing I fear most as the plane is hurtling away or landing is that that plane crash would leave my wife and kids abandoned. That is what I fear the most. As a father who loves his family, the thing I fear most is leaving them alone. And as, as the plane taxis and I think about these things, the the natural concerns that come to mind <coughs> is, will they be strong enough, if I'm not here, for the world, to protect themselves, stand up for themselves, but also strong enough to do good in this world? And uh, will they be alone, or will they be cared for? Will they have a family that loves them, that takes them in? Will they have a home? Will they have a church that loves them? And or will they be afraid? Will they be at peace? Will they know security? And as Jesus is about, those are all my fears and thoughts as I pray for my family in these situations. As Jesus is about to leave his loved ones, and make no mistake about it, he's leaving them. He tells them over and over, I'm leaving. Um, The question I have is, have we been abandoned? He's leaving. And in his leaving, have we been abandoned? Are we, like I fear for my children, powerless? Powerless? alone, with every reason to be afraid in this world. The really interesting thing is when I think about leaving this world and leaving my kids behind, it's a a fear. It's a legitimate fear that I just admitted to you and I confessed. But when you read this text that we just read, as Jesus is leaving, did you sense any fear from him? Anybody Anybody pick up fear? Any of you emotionally intuitive people, did you feel fear coming out of this text? There's none. There's no fear. Instead, what you see is, is profound love and a lot of confidence. As Jesus is leaving his followers, he goes with great love and great confidence. He actually says elsewhere in John, early chapters, John 16, chapters later, that his, his leaving them far from abandoning them is to their advantage. And that's sort of a head scratcher. like, how is it good for us that you're leaving? He makes the case, and he, of course, is right. Uh, what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus, though he's going to be absent in body, is going to be present and active, making his people a loving home, making them a loving home right here on earth. That's a powerful blessing to the world. That's our main point, and it's a lot of words, so I'll say it one more time. That Jesus, though absent in the body, is going to be very much present and active making his people a home and a blessing to the world. So uh, for you note-takers, here's your outline. Even if you're in college ministry, if you're a Presbyterian, you have an outline. So here it is. Not abandoned, but at work, at home, excuse me. Not abandoned, but at home. Not weak, but at work. Not afraid, but at peace. So uh, if, if when you read through these these. These particular parts of John's gospel, 13 through 17, it, it could, this, this sounds like a criticism. It's not meant to be. Who is this guy? He comes in and criticizes Jesus' words. No, I'm not doing that. But sometimes when you read these parts of John, it, it can feel a little convoluted. Like you're not sure. You get a general impression of what things are about from like 20,000 feet up. But down at the verse level, it seems a little bit jumbled. And you're like, what is this really about? I feel like he might be saying the same thing five different times. And I think that's true. He is saying similar things over and over because he wants his closest followers to get it. And in verses 15 to 26, sort of the heart of this text we just read, um, if you're trying to wrestle with it and figure out what it's all about, one really interesting thing to note is that the words Father, Son, uh, Father, Spirit, and Jesus shows up 26 times. It's like 11 verses, 26 times. In other words, and if you throw in all the pronouns, the I and you, it's more like 40. The the, the, the whole heart of this text is just filled with father, son, spirit, and language, which is to say it's filled with the divine family. It's filled with love. And it's clear in the text that God intends, Jesus intends to bring his followers into that love. That's made most explicit in verse 18. In verse 18, he tells his men, I will not leave you as orphans. And he promises his return. I will come to you. Now now in these chapters of John, uh, Jesus makes it clear that he's coming a couple different times in a couple different ways. He's gonna return soon after his death. At this point, the disciples still don't get that Jesus has to die. They don't understand. This is on the cusp, hours away. They're still struggling with reality, but Jesus is saying, I'm gonna come. You're gonna see me very soon in my resurrected form. And then you'll see me again in some ways in the Holy Spirit when I come in power. And then you'll see me again at the very end of all things when I make everything right. So when you're, when you're trying to figure out what does he mean he's gonna come back, um, they don't understand. And I think here Jesus is saying in, in verse 19, yet a little while the world will not see me, but you will see me. And because I live, you will live. I think Jesus is saying, hey guys, I know you don't understand what's going on, but very, very soon. And I think he's talking about, you know, just on the other side of the cross. The, you know, because you understand what's about to happen, my death is going to shatter you. Jesus has already told his men in these chapters that all of them are going to abandon him. that they're all going to flee. One's going to deny. They're going to fall apart. That's going to happen this weekend. They're going to fall apart. And, and naturally, they're probably going to wonder, like, was this all the biggest, dumbest mistake of my life? I mean, I followed this guy for three years, and it ended in a public humiliation, death. Was I that wrong about him? These are the the thoughts and fears the disciples had and and the, the sense of betrayal that they had as they let him down and abandoned him. And Jesus tells them, no, very soon you will see me. And when you see me, you'll know that I live, and because I'm a living, you will live too. You will be like newly reborn and that's what the gospel of uh, the rest of the John and Luke and Acts tells us, that when Jesus reappeared in the flesh, the, uh, the gift of his life to them remade these men from the inside out. They went from depressed, disillusioned, shattered, to fearless, confident, sharers of the good news all over the world. But what I want us to really see is what Jesus promises here. He promises in verse 23 to these men, He says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus here promises, and he actually promises something like it in a couple different ways throughout the text. If you love me and keep my words, uh, and you're loved by the Father, then I will come. In verses 15 to 17, it's the Spirit that will come. Um, Jesus is saying, if if you're in me, you abide in me, you love me, and and you're faithful to me, We're gonna come and live with you. We're gonna make a home right here among you. In other words, father, son, and spirit who already are loving family, who love one another deeply, they are going to move in. It's pretty crazy actually, if you think about it. Okay, the world is gonna kill Jesus. His disciples are gonna let him down. And in reaction to that, after his resurrection, Father, Son, and Spirit will move in with his followers and begin to make a home with them right here in their hearts in the world and and to dwell among us. So when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, it's because he plans to move into the orphanage. He's planning on coming down and moving in with his people. Now, we have an interesting thing in our culture, and I, I married internationally, so I, I know what this looks like in other places. We as Americans have this really fascinating relationship with the idea of orphans. We seem to love orphans and orphan stories. Consider these famous orphans Spider Man, Superman, Batman, and Robin, Cinderella, Snow White, Harry Potter, who's British, but we'll take him as one of ours. Uh, Little Orphan Annie, and I go on and on and on. We love orphan stories. Uh, Other places in the world don't necessarily have this view. Um, And I get it. All these stories are of tremendous overcoming and and becoming forces of good and all those things. Uh, But this has not been my experience with orphans, either here in the States or abroad. And I'll, I'll give you sort of one of the quintessential examples of what I think it's like to be an orphan, Uh, I met my wife on a missions trip. Um, We were both U.S. citizens. I need you to know that I did not mail order a bride, even though she's from Ukraine. Um, We were both living in St. Louis separately in different churches and got together to go to Ukraine and we were working in an orphanage there. And uh, I was sort of put in charge, which was nuts, um, because I have a lot of experience in this kind of setting. And uh, there was one... uh, the whole place was, in, was nuts. <laughs> lots of needy children from, from the orphanages. One kid in particular stood out. He was only six. His name was Jug, and I'm sure that's not his name because Jug means bug. <laughs> so, but no one knew his real name. When you live in an orphanage. It's possible no one knows your real name, including you. So uh, Jug was six, and he stood out for lots of reasons, one of which was uh, he was uncontrollable, fearless, and so far as we could tell, could feel no pain. So one day, Jug fell out of a tree and broke his arm and showed no pain whatsoever. Like, you don't get that way in this world unless something really bad happens, like from the womb, fetal alcohol syndrome, and so forth. So it, to my sense and my experience, I did nothing to help Jug during those two weeks. I, I can't think of anything. I was too busy trying to keep kids from running away and killing each other. I didn't spend a lot of time with Jugg at all. I just didn't. But when I left two weeks later to come back to the States, Jugg cried his eyes out as he called me Papa. That's right. When you're an orphan, anyone who's around, who even pretends to care, who doesn't run away, you will grasp onto them desperately out of love and need, right? That's the experience of an orphan. And it's, it's, it's sad and painful. So why do I bring that up? Why do I mention that? (coughs) Because Jesus here is saying he won't leave us as orphans. And yet it it is the case that we can live like orphans. We can live like, even if you have parents that love you and a family that loves you and a church that loves you, you can live like orphans. And uh, one of our denominations pastors, Jack Miller, who passed away years ago on the other side of the state, used to talk about this. That you can act as if you're an orphan, as if there's no father in heaven who loves you. And he offered this sort of description, which can sort of act as a diagnostic. Is this you? Does this sound like you? You have to take care of yourself. You have to be strong. You can't be weak. You have to protect yourself from being taken advantage of can't depend on anyone. You want to be taken in. You want to be loved and cared for, but you doubt you ever will. You want to be accepted and to belong, but you can't get too close. You can only trust yourself. You often feel like you're on the outside looking in. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Because it's impossible for you to imagine a father who actually loves you bring you in, and care for you. And the good news here is that Jesus is speaking these words of promise, of love to a bunch of people that are about to abandon him and fail him. You don't earn his love. You don't earn his fatherly care. He will come and restore them and bring them to himself and make a home with them right here in this world. And so if it's the case that your family doesn't want you, your spouse doesn't want you. Your job doesn't want you. You need to know that God the Father loves you and wants to move in and make a home with you. That's what He wants. That's what He's after. That's what He's doing. Jesus is present, making a home. Let's talk about what kind of home it is with these last two points, okay? Uh, it's easy for some people to imagine that the home that Jesus makes is a home for weird, wacko people that live out in the woods somewhere. All the weirdos out there. And, uh, it has, and, and let's just go out there in the woods and survive because the world is dangerous and scary. Let's start up a little like, secret camp, and we'll just, we'll just strive to survive because the world is hard and dangerous. So let's just, let's just be quiet and keep our heads down. We'll, we'll do everything together here. Protect our kids. So we won't get involved out there too much. And uh, what we see in our text is that the, the home Jesus is making is not just a refuge for the weak and a place for the fearful. Instead, we're not supposed to be weak, but at work in the world. The first couple of verses that we read, verses twelve to fourteen, are pretty remarkable. I don't know if you noticed them as we read them, but Jesus Jesus makes some pretty interesting claims here. <coughs> And it's part of our question about, uh, part of an answer to our earlier question is, what does Jesus intend to do in this world? About halfway through our text, I don't know if you noticed it, but uh, Jesus says, hey, uh, I'm going to come back, and when I come back, the world won't necessarily see me, but you will. I'll manifest myself to you. And Judas, not the Iscariot one, poor Judas, who's not the Iscariot one, constantly getting confused with the Iscariot one. He gets a parenthesis every time he shows up now. But uh, Judas, not the Iscariot one, has a question. He's like, how, how is that going to work? How will you show yourself to us but not to the world? And I think perhaps just maybe part of Judas's question also might be, "And what about the world? Like if you're not going to show yourself to the world, what about the world? Do you still care about the world? Like what what's going to happen to the rest of the world? Do you care about it? Because you made all these grand promises for the world, and, like, you're about to die, and there's like, there's, like, us in the room. Like, the world hasn't really changed yet. What about the world, Jesus? And Jesus here in verses 12 to 14 makes these grand promises that the believer will do the works that I do, even greater works, because I'm going to the Father. You read that, right? It's in there. I didn't make that up. Verse 12. I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. And uh, it's easy for us to get tripped up on this. Uh, we can go either super optimistic, like, "Yes, I'm gonna, I am going to feed five thousand with my kids' lunch." Almost none of us go that optimistic, uh, but we we expect to do great, great, great things, or we go super cynical. We can't really do anything. I, 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 I don't, I don't. I don't know how to change my own heart. How am I going to change the world? Well, what is Jesus saying here? Well, a couple of things that are important for us is we need to know how this is supposed to happen. And it's that we're supposed to pray. We're supposed to ask in his name. That means in accordance with his will. And when we do so, he hears and he prays to the Father and he works. It says here twice that he will do it. We pray and he will do it. And uh, I just want to give you some some simple suggestions that this actually works and has worked throughout history. Okay. Any University of Pitt alumni in the room? One, two, three. You should all look. These are the very smart people. They're probably engineers or nurses. I have no idea. Actually, I don't know what you studied. Love to catch up with you afterwards. Anyway. So uh, in the broader region, let let me be honest, people that know what we do at Pitt think I'm a miracle worker. Like, oh, you've got students and they're coming to Jesus and they keep their faith. And it's not because I'm a miracle worker. It's that they think Oakland is like Mordor. They think Oakland is like North Korea. Like, how could anything good happen in Oakland? It's like, thank you so much for going and serving Jesus in that really difficult place. And I'm like, actually, I really like it there. It's sort of fun. It's great, actually. Have you been? Um, But I do admit that work at Pitt's hard. But here's proof that Jesus has been at work in the world in remarkable ways. Would you believe that there are more believers at the University of Pittsburgh right now than there was in the world when Jesus died? Absolutely. Absolutely. Probably more in this room right now, more in your community. It's just true, friends. God has been powerfully at work in the world. Just like this, we pray, he works, he strengthens us, we share, people come to faith, people grow, people share. This is how God does the great work that Jesus promises right here. And it's working all over the place. University of Pittsburgh, here in Butler, and elsewhere, God is at work. And it's easy to be cynical and look at this great mess in the world and think, woe well, is us. We can't do anything. And that, friends, is a lie. God is at work right here making us a home and working in us powerfully that we might change and reach our world. So, um, yeah, forget just surviving, friends. You're going to survive. God loves you. He's making a home right here. Let's let's continue to pray and reach and share, trusting that God is doing great work through us. It's an awful, hurting mess in this world, yes. That doesn't mean God's not at work. It doesn't mean Jesus has abandoned it. Yes, we might be a little weak, but he's at work. And also, there's no reason to be afraid. Here's our last point, that we don't need to be afraid. We have reason to be at peace. Not afraid, but at peace in the world. Uh, you know, what's, of all the things I've said that are a little crazy, frankly, you know, Jesus leaves and we're still making a home here. We're weak, it seems, but we're po- God's powerfully at work in us. This one actually might seem the craziest to any of obs- if, if, if there's anyone here who's not a Christian and you've read this for the first time, you're like, man, this is, this is a little out there. Because what Jesus is saying to a bunch of followers hours before his death, I'm going the whole picture is this. I'm going to go die as a criminal. They're going to kill me. Okay, they're going to kill me. What? They're going to kill you? Yes, they're going to kill me. And all of you are going to abandon me. All of you, you're going to flee. Not me, I won't. No, you're right. You're going to publicly deny me. You're going to publicly deny me. So this is all what he says in chapters 13 to 17, okay? And here in 14, to these people that he's just shared all this with, he says, peace. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. Yes, you're right, Jesus. You don't give like the world because no one else in the world could possibly say like, hey, I'm going to die in a few hours and you're all going to fail me, but have peace. I mean, has anyone ever tried to say something like, That discordant to you, the worst thing in the world that you can imagine is going to happen in just a couple hours, and you're going to be so deeply disappointed in yourself that you're going to fall apart. But have peace. And how would you respond? Like, are you are you crazy? How could I possibly have peace? But he's right. Jesus gives like no one else. Actually, twice in this chapter, Jesus says, "Let not your hearts be troubled." Okay, I, I think actually the picture is yeah, you're supposed to be troubled a little bit just a little bit, because you're gonna abandon Jesus. But don't be undone by the reality of your failure or Jesus' death, because he's at work and he's good. You have reason to be at peace. It starts with, and it's not in our text, Jesus is gonna die, but for a reason. He's gonna die to make peace between God and man. The ultimate reason we can have peace is because the ultimate problem we have is our sin and failure with the Father. And, and when these men and when we understand that Jesus' death on the cross is not some huge accident or tragedy of history, but an intentional part of God's plan to make us right with the Father, to remove the hostility, we can have peace. We can have peace, that peace that surpasses all understanding, as Paul says in Philippians 4. But in our text, the peace comes from a couple other places. It's really, really interesting. As I read the last couple verses, 28 to 31, uh, not only does it give me peace, but it it actually makes me feel pretty good about myself. In verses 28 to 31, it feels to me like Jesus is in a hurry. I'm not going to be wrong. I could be reading this wrong. But he's only got a little bit of time. He's only got a little bit of time. Judas has already left to go get the temple authorities. And they're going to come back and get him and arrest him imminently. And, and Jesus has hours, he knows. And he has to get his disciples ready. Very soon he's gonna wrap up this lecture and just start praying. And it feels like here in this section, especially the way it ends, rise, let's go from here, that Jesus feels like the top the clock is ticking. I've got I've like got to hurry this thing up and make my points and move along. And so here, Jesus in verses twenty eight to thirty one, it feels sort of rushed to me like he's running out of time. Like when he says the ruler of this world is coming. I could be wrong, but. Since Jesus, excuse me, Judas and the devil are in cahoots. You can read chapter thirteen. Like Judas is fully uh, in, in collaboration with the devil. I, I think this could mean that. Like I know Judas is coming back any minute to get me, and for this time in history right now, he's in control. So I think Jesus knows time is click, is ticking down. But what's really interesting is what he says about all of this. Verse 28, you heard me saying, I'm going to the father. You say, I'm not just gonna die some tragic thing. No, it's very purposeful. I'm going back to my father. And in verse 29, I've told you all this, everything before it takes place. None of this is a surprise to me. Every single bit of this I've already told you about in great detail. You don't need to be surprised. It's part of the plan. Verse 30, I know he's coming. They're on their way and he has no claim on me. You see that in verse 30? He's coming, and and, and he will take me, and I will die, but he has no claim on me. He's not in charge. He's not in control. Instead, what I'm doing, verse 31, what I'm doing is the Father's will. Let's go. In other words, what's about to happen this weekend before the disciples' despairing eyes is God's plan. It's going to appear like Jesus has been defeated. It's going to look like the cross is the biggest loss in the world. Instead, it's God's plan. It may appear that Jesus is abandoning them. No, he's going to the Father. And then he's going to come back and make a home. In other words, at this moment, while the disciples are wondering, what in the world's going on? How could I possibly have peace? Jesus is saying to them in these last verses, Gentlemen, things are proceeding exactly according to plan. Everything is exceeding exactly according to plan. If you want peace, that peace that is untouchable by your own failures at times and by the world's circumstances and things beyond your control, you need to know both these things. Deep down in some untouchable place in your soul and heart, You need to know that Jesus has made peace with the Father for you. And you need to know that there's a plan and things are proceeding exactly according to plan. That Jesus is in charge. that He's in control. And we know that when verse 29 tells us to believe in him, to love him, when we trust him, when we love him, when we rest in him, when we rest in his plan and his finished work on the cross, that peace can take up residence in that unassailable place in your heart. And when we as a congregation increasingly rest in that plan and in the finished work of Jesus, what it means is it allows us as a whole group of people, this is really cool, a whole group of people to be at peace. And a whole group of people at at peace, you know what they can do? They can stop worrying about themselves. They can stop worrying about the job on Monday. They can stop worrying about Uh, this argument or that argument that you need to settle with someone in the congregation. And then you can turn and you can welcome selflessly, full heartedly other people in your community, into your church, into your lives, into your home, because your problems are not your biggest concern. You have reason to be at peace. You can actually be free from thinking about yourself all the time and be a real blessing to the world. You do know that most of the world is severely preoccupied with thoughts of self the whole time, right? Their own worries, their own fears, their own stresses. Friends, you have reason to be at peace. And that means you can care for them. And that means we can be a real blessing to those around us. Jesus is present, he's active, he's making a world his people, us, a loving home and a blessing to the world. All right, I'm going to finish with an illustration here. And, uh, you know, I work with college students, so my, my illustrations tend to be aimed at 18 to 22-year-olds. So I'm sorry if this one doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't do it for you. Uh, we said, I said we love our orphans in America. <coughs> Perhaps one of our most favorite beloved orphans is this guy named Bruce Wayne, also known as Batman. And uh, at the end of uh, Christopher Nolan's trilogy in the movie, Dark Knight Rises, uh, I'm gonna quickly summarize the the movie for those of you haven't seen it. Uh, Batman is trying to save the city he loves, Gotham. If you don't care, you should know because it was shot in Pittsburgh. He's trying to save Gotham that looks like Pittsburgh. And uh, his his nemesis here is a guy named Bane. He vanquishes Bane, uh, but in the process he's betrayed by a friend, he's stabbed seems like he's not gonna be able to save the city. The city's under threat of a bomb and uh, an, a friend interferes and, uh, and, and sort of sets him free. And so he has the, the, the option uh, of, because of, since they can't detonate it or they can't uh, disarm it, he decides I'll have to remove it. I can fly it out of the city. I can fly it out over the bay. And at this point, his accomplice says, why would you do this? You've you've given them everything. He's talking about the people. You've done everything for them. And he says, not everything, not yet. And so, as the film closes, uh, Bruce Wayne hooks this bomb up to his craft and flies it out of the city, and it explodes out over the bay. And the city, at this point, it watches, knows a couple things. It knows that They are safe, that the thing that was threatening them the most has been removed from their presence and that a man loved them enough to do it, to take it on himself. That's that's a pretty beautiful picture of the gospel, friends, that we can know that, that Jesus has taken that which would kill us, our sin, our guilt, and removed it far from us and took it on himself to set us free that we might live. But that's not why I'm telling you this story. The movie closes not with that. It it closes with a couple other things that are pretty beautiful. It it closes with a scene of the Wayne estate being settled. Bruce Wayne, if you don't know, is a billionaire. And uh, in this private meeting, we hear the Wayne estate, the home, the grounds are to be given to the city's orphans for their perpetual care. It's pretty awesome. Someone who was an orphan decides with all his great resources to be a blessing to all the orphans in the city, to make a home for them. And it doesn't finish there. It finishes, interestingly enough, with one of those orphans, one in particular, a guy named Robin, (coughs) taking up the mission. Taking up the mission, walking in, discovering All the resources are available to him and deciding someone needs to continue the work. I'm going to do it. Friends, that's actually what this, it's a pretty good picture of what is going on here. That Jesus has not left us to our own. He's come and made a home for us, a blessing that we won't be orphans, but he also calls us to join him in his powerful mission of being a blessing to the world, to carry on what he's doing in the world. And we can do that by resting in him, by, by having this warm, loving home, by being at peace and inviting others into it. Okay. Let's pray together. <coughs> our great Lord, we thank you for your great kindness toward us. And Jesus, we pray you be kind. Take these words and press them into our lives that we might be the people here on earth, the loving home uh, that you promised, that you desired Would you make us in this congregation a great blessing to its community? Those that look in, those that drop in, see here, Lord, uh, your peace, your love. And because of those things, Lord, may they trace in some design. Yes, there is a God, and I think he's here. And I think I want in. Would you grant them life, Lord? Would you be kind to do all these things for your glory, the good of your people? We ask these things in your name. Amen.